Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 19th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. It was originally introduced on stage by Dale Gregory, New York Historical's Vice President for Public Programs. In the talk, historian David Armitage discusses his new book, Civil Wars, A History of Ideas. Thank you so much, Dale, for that very warm introduction and also for the opportunity to be back here at the New York Historical Society. I think this is the third or fourth time I've spoken on this stage. It's always a real pleasure to be back, uh, kind of homecoming for me. I want to take us back a few years to a moment not so very long ago when history was supposed to end. In the years after 1989, we were told the free market was going to supplant every other form of economic organization. Its affinity with democracy would ensure that all other forms of politics succumbed to its advance. Globalization was going to create a borderless world of unlimited prosperity and unassailable human rights. I'm sure you all remember this far distant moment. Progress was going to reach its consummation in a utopia of perpetual peace of the kind hoped for by Immanuel Kant at the end of the 18th century. And yet, as we all know, history bit back and with a vengeance. (laughs) It was apparently just drawing breath before springing back into action. Protectionism and nativism seemed to be returning to slam globalization into reverse. The historically brief alliance, as it now seems, between liberalism on one hand and democracy on the other seems to be coming apart at the seams here in the U.S. and also elsewhere across the world. And that world is still obviously a very violent place, no perpetual peace yet. States are mostly at peace with each other. That's certainly true. But after 1989, wars within states have become the most widespread, the most destructive, and therefore, we might say, the most characteristic form of organized human violence. Of the nearly 50 wars now in progress around the world, from Afghanistan to Yemen, there were only two conflicts last year that were among states, between India and Pakistan on the one hand, and between Eritrea and Ethiopia on the other. Each of those cases were very brief border disputes, and the one between Eritrea and Ethiopia lasted for only two days. As you can see from this uh, graph here, all the wars going on in the world except for one or two are what we call intrastate wars or what you or I would call civil wars or internationalized intrastate wars to use the technical term. That is civil wars that draw in outside powers as well. So just about all the active wars, in fact all the active wars right now as I speak are what we would call civil wars all started within the boundaries of a single community or a single state. So far from the better angels of our nature, winning the war on war, to take the title of two, titles of two recent books, what has been called a long peace among states has stood under a dark shadow, the shadow of civil war within states, especially in Africa, South Asia, 
and the Middle East. I don't have a slightly more up-to-date map. This is the newest one I could find, but it uh, reflects the state of violence around the world uh, in 2016, even in 2017 now. Now, the global estimate of battle deaths in these civil wars since 1945 is over 25 million people. That is, about half the estimated direct casualties of the Second World War. Even that count, terrible as it is, doesn't include civilians, the wounded, the displaced, or those who died from the knock-on effects of civil war, such as disease and malnutrition. If we look beyond the human toll of civil war, devastating as that has been, to its material and its economic costs as well, the impact has been no less appalling. Think of the more than 500,000 Syrians killed since 2011, or the more than half of that country's population civil war has displaced beyond its borders. Civil wars cost lives, a great many lives, but they also waste resources, divert spending from welfare to warfare, disrupt economies, foment crime and disease, suppress productivity, often for decades after a conflict. Hard-nosed economists who study global development calculate an annual price tag for civil wars of about $123 billion a year. That is roughly the equivalent of the amount the global north, places like the US and European powers, uh, budget for economic aid to the global south. Not without reason, then, has civil war been chillingly described as development in reverse. One consistent message from history, and I'll take us on a very rapid 2,000-year tour of the history of civil war, one consistent message from that history concerns the horror of civil war. War is hell, the U.S. Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman is supposed to have said, but surely the only thing worse is civil war. Civil war has long been thought, quite rightly, I believe, to be the most destructive of all kinds of human conflict. Some raw numbers can illustrate this. At the height of Rome's civil wars in the first century BCE, perhaps a quarter of all Roman male citizens aged between 17 and 46 were in arms. 1,700 years later, probably a greater proportion of England's population died during its civil wars in the mid-17th century than would die in the First World War. And two centuries later, the combined death toll from both sides in the U.S. Civil War was vastly larger relative to the size of the population at the time than the casualty rate in the Second World War. The estimated number of deaths in the U.S. Civil War is now about 750,000 from both North and South. That would be the equivalent of about 7.5 million deaths in in the contemporary United States. Slaughter on such a scale scythed through families, shattered communities, shaped nations, and scarred imaginations for centuries to come. However, I think we should be cautious about assuming that civil war is an inevitable part of our makeup, a feature, we might say, not a bug in the software that makes us human. That, I think, would be to doom us to suffer civil war ad infinitum. To unsettle the notion that we are condemned to interminable civil war or humanity is condemned to interminable civil war, in my recent book, Civil Wars, A History and Ideas, I bring historical tools to bear on the challenge of civil war for the contemporary world. I argue that it's neither eternal nor inexplicable, as many people have held it to be. It has a history, as I'll show in a moment, with an identifiable beginning, if not yet a discernible end. What humans have invented, I argue, they may yet dismantle. 
what has been created through an effort of intellectual will may yet be demolished by a similar effort of imaginative determination. The book is the first long-range history of civil wars from their beginnings in Republican Rome all the way up to the present in South Asia and the Middle East, over 2,000 years, as it were, from Sulla, the Roman general here on the left, to Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad here on the right. The goal of the book was to point out the significance of civil war in forming the ways we think about our world, especially our political world. I argue that despite its obvious destructiveness, civil war has been paradoxically conceptually very fertile. Without the challenges posed by civil war, I argue, our conceptions of politics, authority, revolution, international law, humanitarianism, and globalization, to name just a few, would have been quite different, perhaps even poorer. The experience of civil war, the efforts to understand it, to ameliorate it, even ultimately to prevent it, continues to inform our ideas of community, authority, and sovereignty to this very day. For those of us lucky enough to live in the shadow of the long peace, uh, to be in countries uh, which are without civil war, and we're at a remarkable moment now where the entire Western Hemisphere of the Americas uh, lacks any active civil war, at least for the moment, civil war is now a matter more of memory and metaphor than lived experience though uh, it's been notable to me over the past few months to see uh, the rise in the language of civil war within American politics and also beyond it. So, for example, in 2004, uh, Newt Gingrich, at that point Speaker of the House of Representatives, described American politics as if it were a civil war. And here I quote him. The left, at its core, understands in a way Grant understood after Shiloh that this is a civil war, that only one side will prevail and the other side will be relegated to history. Then Gingrich sketched out the terms of the fight as he saw it. This war, he argued, has to be fought with the scale and duration and savagery that is only true of civil wars. While we're lucky in this country that our civil wars are fought at the ballot box, not on the battlefields, nonetheless, it is a civil war. And we can feel, I think, the resonance of that language uh, now as uh, the country becomes ever more deeply polarized, as uh, sides fail to understand each other and the violence of political language, and indeed the agents, or perhaps the particular agent with a capital T, who ferments the violence of that political language, deepen those divisions, make us more anxious, and also have led, I think, quite directly to a ramping up of this language of civil war. But we can hear that language elsewhere across the world at the moment as well. For example, in the aftermath of the Daesh attack on Paris in November 2015, then-French Prime Minister Manuel Valls charged that the right-wing Front National in that country was stirring up civil war in that country. There are two options for France, he said. The option of the extreme right, which foments division, and that division can lead to civil war. And one can read almost any newspaper or blog about politics across the Western world and indeed beyond at the moment uh, to learn about a civil war in the Tory party in Britain over Brexit, uh, a civil war within the Republican Party over various policies of Trump. It goes on and on and on. You can find this in Brazil. You can hear it in, in Spain at the moment with the uh, uh, dispute over Catalonia, for instance. In some ways, sadly, terrifyingly also, uh, it seems around the world that democratic politics seems increasingly to be civil war by other means. 
Civil wars do then seem to be everywhere, in the headlines and on the ground, in hearts and minds, and in the commemorations of civil wars past, and of course in the struggles over their long-term meaning. As the Vietnamese writer and recent MacArthur fellow, Viet Thanh Nguyen, recently wrote, quotes, All wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. Uh, and I think that's especially true of civil wars, and we can, of course, see that in the battles over Confederate uh, statues uh, in the U.S. at the moment. This is continuing in memory and commemoration, the struggle of the civil war on its battlefields. Others can, other countries can hardly imagine themselves without the memory of civil war, and I think the U.S. is one of those. The international community perceives other conflicts, active conflicts, like the one in Iraq at the moment, for example, as a perpetual battleground of unending civil wars. In each case, there seems little doubt what is and what is not a civil war. Everyone knows civil war when they see it, we might say. But I believe the benefit of some history and perhaps also the curse of remembering that history, is the knowledge that civil war has never been quite as stable or transparent a category as its use in popular speech and memory might imply. More than most other forms of conflict, civil wars spring from deep and deadly divisions, but at the same time they expose identities and commonalities. To call a war civil is, in fact, to acknowledge the familiarity of the enemies uh, uh, of your enemies as members of the same community, not foreigners, but fellow citizens. That's the original meaning. Uh, it comes from the Latin word kives, meaning citizens, from which we get civil, and out of that we get civil war. Not just a war often among fellow citizens, but often thought of as a war among brothers. So the primal Roman image of civil war, which I'll come back to in a moment, is the war between Romulus and Remus, which led to the founding of the city itself. Think of Cain and Abel, uh, th think of Arjuna and Krishna. All world traditions seem to have at their very heart a fratricidal uh, war, um, which exposes this sense of intimacy and enmity at the same time. Civil war has something atrocious about it, remarked the German legal thinker Karl Schmitt in the mid-20th century. It is fraternal war, he went on, because it's conducted within a common political unit and because both sides at the same time when they're warring absolutely affirm and absolutely deny that commonality. And I think that's the heart of the paradox of civil war, that we recognize our enemy at the moment of they're holding a sword to our throat or looking down the barrel of a gun at them. We know we're part of the same community even at that moment when we're most torn apart. And I think that's one basic source of the, the horror, the existential horror, we might say, about civil wars. And we shouldn't underestimate the effect of them in forcing a recognition of commonality amid confrontation of making us see ourselves in the mirror of enmity itself. There's never been a time when the definition of civil war was settled to everyone's satisfaction or when the term could be used without question or contention. I argue in the book that that's in part because civil war has been disputed and debated within so many different historical contexts over the centuries. Naming is always a form of framing. The application of the term civil war may depend upon whether you're a ruler or a rebel the victor or the vanquished in a struggle, an established government or an outside party, a third, a third party looking in on such a struggle. 
But how do we tell civil wars apart from other kinds of wars when so many internal conflicts conflicts spill over their country's boundaries or draw incompetence from outside, as happened in places like Liberia and Rwanda in the 1990s, as well as in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria today? Can such wars even be considered civil in the sense of taking place among fellow members of the same community when insurgent groups comprise transnational elements like Al-Qaeda or deliberately set themselves against the existing world order of states like Daesh or ISIS? Is every civil war really a specimen of the same species when so many distinct dynamics, ethnic conflicts, wars of secession, national liberation, get called civil wars? I argue in the book that like any complex idea, and it's a particularly complex idea as I show, civil war has multiple pasts. The aim of the book is to show the ways in which uh, our own understandings of civil war are the product of its long history. And I take three crucial turning points, uh, a couple of which I'll come to in just a moment, uh, as pivot moments in the life, the biography of the idea of civil war. The first is in the late 18th century when civil war began to be distinguished from a newly emerging idea for describing uh, epochal political and social transformation, revolution. We talk about the American Revolution now in retrospect, uh, but in the 1770s it was often called a civil war, even the American Civil War. That term is first used in 1774, 1775 to describe that struggle. And I argue that a successful civil war often gets rebranded retrospectively as a revolution. The second turning point was in the context of the U.S. Civil War when law for the first time was brought into the definition and the regulation uh, of civil war. And then the third turning point, I argue, was in the 1960s during the Cold War when uh, academics, especially political scientists, but also people, for example, in international organizations like the World Bank and the United Nations and in NGOs, became very interested in defining civil war in order to understand it collectively and in the aggregate uh, throughout the world in order to prevent it or to ameliorate uh, some, of its, uh, um, uh, some of its effects. So those are the three turning points. What I'm going to do very briefly now is take you from uh, ancient Rome up to contemporary Syria to give you a sense of the way in which civil war has had an impact on the human imagination and also to give a sense of the ways in which its long history has created a very tangled understanding, uh, the contestation, the controversy, and I think also the confusion, as I'll show in relation to Iraq and to Syria, about what is and is not a civil war. Now, to tell that story, I broke my book into three parts, each of two chapters. The first part I called Roads from Rome, tracing changing conceptions of civil war chronologically from the 1st century BCE to the 5th century BCE, roughly uh, from Cicero to St. Augustine. During that period, I argue, Roman conceptions decisively shaped arguments about civil war, about its normative and legal definition, about how to recognize a civil war, about where it came from, about whether it was likely to recur. In regard to civil war, I argue all roads led from Rome. And Rome, again, I argue quite forcefully, is where civil war was invented. It had to be invented. Civil war was not a fact of nature waiting to be discovered. It was an artifact of human culture that had to be invented. 
The invention of civil war is only a little over 2,000 years old, and it can be dated quite precisely to the first century BCE. Now, of course, I'm not arguing that the Romans were the first to experience any kind of internal conflict. What I am arguing quite precisely is they were the first to experience it as civil war. That is a war among fellow citizens, kives, again, civil comes, comes from that, but also that these contentions, these struggles, rose to the level of war. The ancient Greeks would talk about faction or division, but they wouldn't talk about war inside the community. For the Romans, it was a war. How could you tell it was? You had generals, you had drums, you had trumpets, you had armies that could be recognized as armies. That was a different scale, but uh, existentially it was a a very different kind of threat. Ethically, it was also a very different kind of threat uh, as far as they were concerned as well. The Romans adopted the idea of civil war reluctantly at first. For a long time, they wouldn't even use the word civil war to describe what was happening in Rome except without fear and trepidation. And it still takes, I think, a feat of historical imagination to recall just why it was originally so disturbing. We can see this most graphically, actually, in the case of perhaps the most famous of all civil warriors, at least from Rome, Julius Caesar himself. As many of you will know, he wrote a, a famous book entitled The Civil War, describing his struggle with Pompey. Except, as we now know, the title was not his. And if you actually read very carefully the text of the book, he deliberately avoids the words civil war, bellum civile in Latin. He will not speak uh, those words. And therefore, I think for him, as for many Romans in this earlier period, civil war was the war that dared not speak its name. However, even if Romans could not talk about it, not face civil war, uh, they had to experience a succession of civil wars, uh, which suggested to them that there might be a tight relationship between civilization, their own Roman civilization, and the recurrence of civil wars. Such conflicts came back often, repeatedly, across the history of the Roman Republic and into the early decades of the Roman Empire. They came back so often, in fact, that they appeared to be Romans to be woven into the very fabric of their own history, their own ethical and public life. This created a set of narratives of a civilization, Roman civilization, that was prone to civil war, even cursed by it, that would last for centuries and inform later understandings of civil war across early modern Europe and modern Europe, and indeed beyond. The most recent instance I found of this is the, uh, the Confederate monument in Arlington Cemetery set up by the Daughters of the American Revolution. I'm sorry, I don't have a photograph here, but uh, that monument set up and dedicated in 1918 has a Latin inscription on the bottom which comes right out of the Roman Civil Wars, basically saying, okay, well, God said... The Union was uh, going to be the victors, but really uh, everybody knew that the moral side was the defeated one. It's a Latin quotation often used to pull that together, but uh, uh, the the idea that that Roman image, that Roman uh, uh, poetry, in fact, was still being used as late as 1918 to commemorate the U.S. Civil War as a sign of the tenacity of Rome uh, and the imagination of civil war deep even into the 20th century. As I show in the second part of the book, which I called Early Modern Crossroads, uh, the Roman explanations of civil war and their narratives provided the repertoire from which thinkers in Europe between the 16th and the 18th centuries drew their own conceptions of civil war. Since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, two conceptual clusters, civil war and revolution, would drift apart from each other with quite distinct moral and political implications. Civil wars as backward-looking, destructive, regressive, Revolutions as future-oriented, fertile, and progressive. 
successful civil wars, as I've suggested, were rebranded as revolutions, and revolutionaries would deny that they were ever engaged in civil wars. We can now, in fact, easily perform a kind of political conjugation. I am a revolutionary, you are a rebel, but they are engaged in a civil war. The third and last part of the book I call Paths to the Present, which traces the conceptual heritages of civil war from the end of the US, from the era of the US Civil War down to our own time, to the 21st century. The 19th century's great contribution, as I've already mentioned briefly, to civil war was the attempt to civilize it by bringing it under the domain of law beginning with the very first codification of the modern laws of war, here rather blurrily uh, on the right, uh, the so-called Lieber Code produced in 1863 in the middle of the U.S. Civil War, the very first codification of the laws of war, but also the foundation for the Hague Conventions of the late 19th century, which then in turn became the foundation for the Geneva Conventions of the 20th and 21st centuries, authored by the man on the left, Francis Lieber, uh, a Prussian-born lawyer uh, who uh, came to the United States in the 1830s, became the first professor of political science uh, anywhere in the United States, actually at Columbia College, now Columbia University, just a little bit uptown, but was asked to draft this first legal code, uh, which, as I say, became the basis for uh, later international humanitarian law, in particular the Geneva Conventions. Civilizing civil wars, he wished to do, remains a task for the international legal community right down to our own time. The roots of their concern and the tensions raised by civil war within what we now call international humanitarian law are the subject of the latter part of the book. And I'll come to that in just a moment uh, to talk about its application to Syria and some of the paradoxes and difficulties that that attempt to civilize civil war through law have actually created. In the very latter part of the book, I trace developments as civil war goes global across the course of the 20th century. The boundaries of the communities within which civil wars took place expand greatly over the course of that century, from individual countries to regions like Europe or Asia, and then ultimately to create a conception of what comes to be called global civil war. Um, first used in the First World War, but it becomes a term of art and widely circulated in the early Cold War. So, for instance, John F. Kennedy, uh, in his second State of the Union address, talks about the Cold War as a global civil war uh, between, of course, the United States on the one hand and its allies and the Soviet Union on the other. That expansion of the idea of, of civil war from individual communities to in the whole of humanity collided, uh, I argue, collided with the late 20th century effort beginning in the Cold War by social scientists in particular to bring some conceptual clarity to the study of civil war beginning in the, in the 1960s during the era of anti-colonial wars at the end of empire conflicts which were then deliberately excluded uh, from the definition of civil wars, interestingly. I show in the conclusion of the book that past conceptions of civil war have lasted into the present in what we might call the intellectual DNA of international organizations, journalistic organs, and scholarly discussions. They are the cause of what I think is much of our own conceptual confusion about what is and what is not a civil war. And let me illustrate that now with just two examples before coming to a conclusion and taking your questions. The first example from Iraq during the second Gulf War, the second example from Syria uh, just a few years ago, five or six years ago. 
So the height of the violence in Iraq after the U.S.-led invasion, uh, when more than 3,000 people a month were dying uh, towards the end of 2006 and the beginning of 2007, there was vehement disagreement. Some of you may remember this. There was vehement disagreement whether the category of civil war fit the facts on the ground in Iraq at that that point. And I should just say in in, a sidebar here, this is where I began working on this book. I was observing that debate uh, I just finished the book on the Declaration of Independence, a global history that Dale kindly mentioned, where I found many, many people talking about, again, what we call the American Revolution as a civil war. So I was attuned to the sense that a civil war was not quite what I thought it was, and it applied to some different kinds of conflicts. And then tuning into this argument, this political argument in 2006, 2007, I thought there might be a connection uh, between those two things. This is how histories happen. Uh, Mark Twain talked about history not repeating itself, but rhyming. There was a kind of rhyme between those, those disputes. Ten years later, I realized I had to go backwards and backwards and backwards to understand where all those things came from. And and the book was the result. But this particular moment, I think, is, is very interesting, and I write about it at greater length in the book. Uh, so at that moment, again, late 2006, early 2007, really the, the worst, the bloodiest period of the, of the second Gulf War in Iraq, representatives of the then Bush administration and other mostly right-wing military strategists and political pundits denied that the turbulence in Iraq merited the name of civil war. They talked about terrorism, they talked about an insurgency, but they refused to call it a civil war. For many inside and outside Iraq, of course, there was no doubt that what was happening was indeed a civil war. At the time, Kofi Annan, then the UN Secretary General, told the BBC, when we had strife in Lebanon and other places, we called that a civil war. What's happening in Iraq is much worse. At the same time, various sectors of the U.S. media started calling the conflict in Iraq a civil war. I think NBC, the LA Times, started using that term uh, quite openly and justified why they used that. At the same moment, just to give one quotation, a young Shiite sheikh from Iraq vehemently told the New York Times, you need to let the world know that there's a civil war here in Iraq. It's a crushing civil war. We don't know who our enemy is and who is our friend. Quite predictably, there was adamant disagreement from the other side that the civil war did fit the facts in Iraq. So, for example... In December 2006, the then Prime Minister of Iraq, Nouri al-Maliki, briskly rejected characterization of the conflict as civil war and accused Kofi Annan, among others, of burnishing the image of Saddam Hussein, uh, implying that he was a viable belligerent or his supporters were viable belligerents, not terrorists or insurgents. Later that year, uh, two military uh, analysts offered uh, a a very uh, learned dismissal of the term civil war to describe the violence in Iraq. For any conflict to earn the designation civil war, they argued, the violence must be civil, it must be war, and its aim must be either the exercise or the acquisition of national power. That is, it must be fought within a state by organized bodies of combatants drawn from a single national population who use force either to grasp or to retain overall political authority within their territory. This will be on the test afterwards, so I hope you got all of that. Those two authors, in fact, running that highly elaborate definition through modern history, uh, could find only five civil wars uh, since the 17th century. The English Civil War, the American Civil War, the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, and the Lebanese Civil War of the 1970s and 80s. 
because they argued the clashing parties in Iraq were fragmented, partly made up of non-Iraqi insurgents and fighting for ends both more contradictory and simply uh, opaque than seizing national authority, they concluded that Iraq's troubles were not the modern world's sixth civil war. Instead, they proposed, and here I quote them, the disorders in Iraq do not constitute a civil war, but are nearer to a politico-military struggle for power, whatever that may be. Now, that may sound ridiculous, but it was a much wider debate at the time, and uh, I can talk more in questions, but I'll say a little in a moment about the, the, uh, the Syrian case, about why those terms mattered so much and why there was such a struggle about them. The Iraqi government and representatives of the Bush administration officially denied that Iraq was in the grip of civil war. This is a cartoon from that moment. To admit that it was implied that the government had lost its authority and entailed, it also entailed a bevy of strategic implications for the U.S.-led coalition forces. It would mean, for instance, deciding which side, Sunni or Shiite, the coalition should support as it made its bets on an internal struggle for dominance. Calling it a civil war could also imply that the invaders had unleashed sectarian enemies that previously had no outlet, that events were spinning out of control. If such instability continued, then much higher troop levels would be needed to prevent the conflict from spilling over Iraq's borders, as of course it would. Alternatively, a rapid but undignified withdrawal by the U.S. and its allies might be necessary to avoid being drawn ever deeper into indigenous dilemmas, which an alien presence from outside would only inflame but could never resolve. Now, let me just turn very briefly to, to Syria by, before drawing a few conclusions. Let's go back to Syria in 2011 and 2012. Ordinary Syrians knew very well throughout 2011 and the first half of 2012 that what they were experiencing amid contention with the regime of Bashar al-Assad was civil war, and many people talked about it in these terms from within Syria. Outside the country, uh, however, interested parties across the globe debated whether or not it had descended into civil war. So just to give one example, a White House uh, spokesperson in December 2011 uh, demurred when he was asked if uh, he agreed with a UN official who'd said that Syria was experiencing civil war. This is what he said. We think violence needs to end in Syria, and that includes among the opposition elements. But there's no way to equate the two sides, which in my view is what would be implied by using the term civil war for that conflict. It took the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, until July 2012, that is more than a year into the conflict, and after probably about 17,000 people had already died in Syria, to confirm that what was taking place there was in fact a civil war. In fact, they used the much more precise legalistic language of our time, which is a non-international armed conflict. There's a particular history of that term. We don't, we, again, we don't want to talk, we don't want to speak the name civil war. So this is the legal term, uh, non-international armed conflict. But when the Red Cross had made that determination, it became possible, for example, for the relevant parties to be covered by provisions of the Geneva Conventions. The reluctance to call that conflict a civil war or a non-international armed conflict became typical of international organizations in the 21st century because now so much politically and militarily 
ethically and legally hangs on the use or the withholding of the term. Uh, in particular, uh, not just um, uh, the Geneva Conventions, but also uh, humanitarian aid may be taken into a country if the Red Cross uh, determines that what's happening is a non-international armed conflict rather than, say, a police action within the domestic borders of a country. Uh, information gathering which might lead to war crimes prosecutions can happen after that determination is made. So a lot hangs on that uh, official stamp of approval, as it were, that what's happening is a civil war or a non-international armed conflict. In this sense, a set of legal protocols, the Geneva Conventions in particular, uh, that were designed to humanize, to civilize the conduct of civil war, uh, served uh, over that year from 2011 to into 2012, served only to constrain international actors in their stance towards Syria. Now, as I think the examples of Iraq and Syria reveal, there's no agreement about just which features of civil war should take priority in defining it uh, and how they might be assigned to particular conflicts. There are lawyers, there are social scientists, there are historians, there are political commentators, there are, of course, mostly the people on the ground who are battling over the description of their conflicts. And it turns out to be very, very difficult uh, to apply those terms without any kind of contention or contest. Now, where a philosopher or a lawyer, for instance, might find only confusion in that wrangling over those two words, civil war, a historian, at least this historian, sense an opportunity. My task, I thought, in this book was not to come up with a better definition of civil war on which all the sides could agree, but rather to ask where these different conceptions, where these different competing ideas of civil war had come from, what they'd meant, and how they arose from the experience of those who lived through civil war, or who attempted to understand it in the past. The stakes, I argue, for applying or also for withholding the label civil war are so high now that I think it's unlikely that politics can ever be eliminated from its application. Like the term genocide, with which it has some interesting overlaps, civil war has not only political connotations but precise legal implications that can trigger concern and action from the international community. Over the course of 2,000 years, I try to show civil war has been subject to dispute and division. And there was never a time uh, when its definition was settled to everyone's satisfaction or when it could be used without question or contention. But examining those moments of argument and contention can be very revealing about how people think about their communities, what they think about the force of law, how they think about their enemies, how they think about the future after such a conflict ends. And speaking of ending, let me just conclude with three very brief reflections on the purpose of this 2,000-year history in ideas of civil wars. I believe that such a long view of civil wars can encourage three things, humility, complexity, and ultimately hope. Humility, because we can see that much of what we think we now know about civil wars was discovered centuries, even millennia ago. So, for example, social scientists now tell us that civil wars last much longer, recur more often, and leave deeper wounds than any other kinds of conflict. The Romans had discovered that during their own civil wars 2,000 years ago. Uh, We didn't need very large, well-funded projects to, to tell us that, but it's nice to have confirmation of it. That's the humility. Then complexity. Complexity because our own struggles over the meaning and the significance of civil war in places like Iraq and Syria arise from multiple histories that jostle and collide 
in the present. You all know the famous Faulkner quote, the past isn't even past. It's always with us. The past is always there, but we're not always aware of it. And that's part of the historian's job is to make us realize how much of the past is still jostling away in our memories and even in the very language that we use to talk about our current disputes. Controversies over the meaning of civil war arise from its multiple histories, which I believe need to be carefully excavated to be properly understood. And finally, not to depress you about the incidents of civil war, but uh, to give you a little bit of hope to end with, or perhaps a tempered hope, I might say. The long view shows, I believe, that civil war is not a congenital curse for humanity, but perhaps an affliction that we might gradually cure. And indeed, the incidence of civil war does seem to be declining. In the late 1980s into the early 1990s, it was definitely rising and causing a great deal of concern around the world. More recently, in the, la- in the last decade or so, the number of civil wars and also their intensity, if we measure that by the number of casualties, despite horrible civil wars like Iraq and Syria, uh, civil wars do seem to be declining in number, fewer civil wars are beginning, and the casualty rate within the existing civil wars also seems to be going down. Also, major civil wars, for example, the civil war in Sri Lanka, which had lasted for more than 25 years, and the civil war in Colombia, not Colombia uptown, but Colombia in Central America, uh, which had lasted for nearly 50 years, uh, have lately been terminated after decades of death and destruction. In the case of Colombia, very significantly with a peace agreement, an internationally brokered peace agreement. And that seems now to be uh, the most effective way of ending civil wars, is to have a treaty among the parties and then to have an international buy-in to uh, enforce and monitor that. And as I mentioned earlier, the entire Western Hemisphere uh, of the Americas is free of civil war for almost the first time in two centuries. So perhaps humanity is at last on the verge of disinventing what the Romans had first invented over 2,000 years ago. Until we do disinvent civil war, I believe we need history and a very long slice of history to assess the future prospects for escaping one of humanity's most destructive discontents. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you. And now uh, I will take part in uh, something I've never done before, but I believe is now characteristic of the, of the society here, which is to receive your questions on note cards anonymously. So this is like having a, 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 birth, a birthday uh, piece of music read out on the radio without actually telling you whose birthday it is or who's, who sent it in. So I hope you'll rec- recognize your, your questions as I, I read them out. Be- beautiful script for whoever gave me the cards. Thank you, Alex. So which world leaders, I'm asked, both in contemporary times as well as in ancient times, were particularly effective at combating civil wars and uniting their people? Um, That's an excellent question. Uh, Various different answers have been given to that uh, about what kind of skills, uh, what kind of political solution is necessary after a civil war. Uh, One of the lessons of civil war is they are very difficult to end, uh, that they leave such deep wounds, it's very hard to heal the communities that have been wracked by civil war. Um, So you need sometimes a very forceful character like, say, the Emperor Augustus, uh, who had arisen from the Roman civil wars and managed to bind uh, Rome back together. But many of his admirers said uh, that was because he had brought in effectively an autocratic system, a monarchy, to bind the wounds of civil war. 
who might we say did that uh, in, the in the United States? Uh, if Lincoln had lived, he would have been such a character, uh, for instance. But one could think about different examples, but always under uh, uh, conditions of great stress where it's one single individual is usually not sufficient. Uh, it takes, as it were, a social contract, and often, as we're discovering now, as I mentioned, it takes the international community uh, to pull together a community on the inside, but also to give it support from the outside to ensure that the wounds of civil war are not just closed, but they never reopen as well. I think that's one of the lessons of history. Very pointed question here from uh, uh, somebody. Is there a contemporary Western democracy that I feel is especially vulnerable to civil war? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I think maybe you have an answer to this. Uh, I'll avoid that one, uh, which I think uh, is an interesting one. You remember there's a piece in The New Yorker a few weeks ago uh, surveying various uh, political scientists and others who study contemporary civil wars who said they thought that the the, the barometer was ticking up in the United States and there might be a 35% possibility of civil war in this country. I mean, I am very concerned, as I'm sure you all are, by the, uh, the depth of division and lack of understanding between political sides and the violence of language. I think uh, once you add that into um, the ready availability of small arms in this country as well, uh, it creates a potentially explosive mixture which we should all be concerned about. I think at the moment I would say Spain right at this particular moment. Uh, I haven't checked uh, the headlines in the, in the last two or three hours to know how that uh, dispute has moved on in all seriousness because it's, it's moving in real time uh, whether the, the central Spanish government in Madrid is, is uh, uh, going to go through with its uh, threat to enforce Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution to take powers back from Catalonia. Uh, that may be constitutional and legal, but it will take force police force or possibly military force for that to happen, and it will probably be resisted. So I think among contemporary Western democracies in real time, uh, in within days, perhaps, uh, that is the one I would be most worried about, though I am obviously concerned about the U.S. as well. Um, does foreign intervention improve resolution of civil wars, i.e. the long-term outcomes? Uh, again, there might be two ways of thinking about that, whether we're talking about military intervention on the one hand during the course of a civil war or intervention by uh, diplomatic uh, and other international forces who try to bring peace to a formerly warring country. I think on balance, military intervention tends to inflame uh, conflicts rather than to dampen them down or lead to a greater possibility of their resolution. Uh, but if you think back, let's, let's say um, the first really important example, I think, are uh, uh, the Dayton Accords after the Balkan Wars, where international intervention was primarily diplomatic. Of course, it had been military before then as well, but primarily diplomatic. Um, and that does seem over time to become a greater guarantee of resolving civil wars in the short term, but also allowing for the possibility of the regrowth of communities after that as well. Oh, somebody else asked me, what do I make of the current situation in Spain? I think I've already answered that one. Um, is not the Iraq war, another question runs, also a religious conflict between Sunni Shiites, especially with the involvement of Shia Iran? Yes. Uh, and that was, uh, that's obviously a fact. Uh, it's obviously a factor in many of the uh, conflicts within uh, the Middle East. And that was certainly debated in the context of the argument that I gave a brief slice of from 2006, 2007. Some commentators saying, for instance, that uh, although it was a 
in a, in a fundamental way a political civil war for control of Iraq itself. Uh, the intensity of that was sharpened by the fact it was a religious civil war at the same time. And then more recently, this idea of global civil war that I mentioned uh, has been activated to say uh, in relation to transnational terrorism, first for al-Qaeda and then for ISIS, uh, that those bodies, as they've gone global with their terrorist activities, are somehow projecting an internal division within Islam onto a global scale. And that's one of the meanings that's been given to global civil war. I think there's an obvious Islamophobic tinge to that construction, uh, but uh, we, we cannot um, uh, dismiss the importance of religion in, uh, f and especially in the modern world, our contemporary world, in intensifying uh, these conflicts. Please discuss another question. Please discuss how words and language like civil war or holocaust, hate war are examples given here, both help us to understand but also to obscure our understandings of true violent concepts. I think that's, uh, that's really the heart of what I'm trying to do in the book is to clarify the multiple meanings that are built into, sedimented, in, sedimented into these apparently quite simple terms that we use, uh, but to show the layers of complexity behind them that we cannot use them innocently or we shouldn't use them innocently, especially if we're in positions of power to affect what's happening on the ground. If you're a politician, if you're a prominent journalist, if you're an international humanitarian lawyer, if you're somebody in the United Nations using these terms, they have to be used extraordinarily carefully, not only because of the emotional resonances they have and the historical memories that they can excite uh, in the minds of uh, people, but also because some of them, again, like genocide or civil war, have legal implications as well. And I think that's why, for instance, in relation to, to Syria, that uh, um, Hillary Clinton, among others, was very reluctant to use the term civil war until the Red Cross had used the equivalent term to describe that conflict because of the legal implications that a diplomat of her stature on the world stage would, would raise um, by, by using that term. Ah, now, this, this is a, a question perhaps we could throw back to the audience. It's well beyond my competence to answer it. If there were no issues stemming from religion uh, or racism, would we have wars, civil or otherwise? Uh, I think there are many motivations through history for wars. It would be wonderful to imagine a world without, those, uh, 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 with, without the conflicts arising from those motivations, uh, but uh, I'm not so certain. Uh, I mean, to take... Just one example, There's, there seems to be a very close correlation uh, in civil wars in the period since 1989 between the incidence of civil war and uh, the availability of very valuable natural resources, especially in Africa, for instance. So uh, if you're in an unstable country which has diamonds or oil or something equally valuable uh, that can be raided um, and can be used massively to enrich one party or another, that can uh, deeply intensify civil war to add another layer upon something that might be a struggle for political power, which might have religious dimensions. But once you get the prize of an oil field, for instance, uh, that can enrich the victors or a family, even a family among the victors, then it increases that intensity. So I fear that even if we could wonderfully, magically uh, abolish uh, the uh, uh, religious division and other kinds of uh, division like racism, I don't think wars would necessarily uh, go away. Uh, but uh, well, as I say, said at the very end, we have some hope that the incidence of wars is going down. We are finding ways to, to understand them and to ameliorate them now. Um, 
Did my book cover civil wars in China, India, and or Japan? Uh, when you uh, buy the book, as you all must, before you leave, the doors will be locked until each family at least has one copy. Uh, it makes a wonderful holiday present for all your friends and family. Um, when you buy the book, you, you'll see uh, the pages at the very beginning where I say why, because I don't speak or read Chinese. I don't talk about China in any detail, but I hope very much that other people will. Part of the point of writing a crazy book over 2,000 years, as I tried to do, was to encourage others who, for example, know Chinese or know Arabic to write similar books that can be fed into a broader conversation. I was not competent to do those things, but I say at the beginning it would be very valuable to have similar long-range discussions of the equivalent terms. In Chinese, the equivalent term is internal war. Uh, in Arabic, the equivalent term is fitna, which means a whole range of things, uh, uh, including uh, faction, uh, religious division, uh, but has a whole set of poetic meanings as well. So the vocabulary uh, and the concepts that emerge from that are, are infinitely complicated in even more interesting ways, I think, in some ways than, than our originally Roman language of civil war, so there's much more to be done with that. And I think with that, unless there are any... Oh, there are more? Okay. Uh, I think I have five minutes, so we'll run through. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. See how many of these we can, we can get through. Uh, can civil wars have a positive function? Could slavery have been abolished without the American Civil War? That is a, uh, a $64,000 question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, one of the things that surprised me when I was writing the book was how many people, especially in the 19th century, talk in the early 19th century, before the U.S. Civil War, though it changes afterwards, how many people in that period talk about civil war as something that's necessary for a society to go through, uh, to purge some of its worst elements, to strengthen it uh, by, uh, uh, like, the process of uh, uh, annealing uh, metal uh, to create a stronger society. There's a heavy masculinity involved in that. It's very Spanish. Uh, Spaniards and people in Spanish America often talk in these terms, but certainly after the Civil War, yes, uh, a civil war fought for um, a noble and transformative cause like abolition or uh, to oppose uh, the perpetuative slavery with an abolitionist agenda can indeed be a positive outcome of that. Was Vietnam a civil war? Was there something unique about that conflict? Yes, for the Vietnamese, it was certainly a civil war um, and talked about very much in those terms at the time between North and South Vietnam. But it was many other things as well. Of course, it was a civil war, which was also an anti-colonial war, um, was, uh, a war both against the, the, the former French uh, masters of, of, um, uh, of Vietnam and against the Americans. Um, there's a very interesting hearing in the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee that I write about in the book uh, where uh, this is unimaginable in our time. But uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee calls in a group of historians and political scientists for three days uh, to ask them, what do we mean by revolution? What do we mean by civil war? Can we talk about what's happening in, Viet in Vietnam as a revolution? If so, what kind of revolution? What sort of civil war? Um, and wonderfully rich uh, volume comes out, comes out of that from uh, 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 a very distinguished group of, uh, of scholars who uh, talk in great detail about that. Um, and there's, there's a marvelous exchange that I retail in the book where 
they're talking about a re- what a revolutionary civil war might be, a kind of civil war for this kind of sort, this transformative end. Um, and the uh, the then chairman of the uh, uh, the committee, Senator Fulbright, of course, a southern senator, has a, a very southern conversation with a, a political scientist who also comes from the south. And they say, so so what happened? The late unpleasantness between 1861 and 65 was was a revolutionary civil war, was it? According to what you're saying about Vietnam and the, the political scientists, yeah, that was a revolutionary civil war. But we lost, didn't we? Yeah, we lost. Uh, and so they're joshing around with that. But with that serious intent to think about was, was what was happening in uh, Vietnam, a civil war, what kind? Um, please explain why governments took so long to name the Syrian war a civil war, but so quick to call ISIS a state. I know much less about the second part of that, and I've talked a little bit about the first one. Um, I mean, it's interesting now, I think this was yesterday in the New York Times, that we're now no, lo- no longer talking about ISIS as a state or a caliphate anymore. It's retreating from its territorial uh, base or has been pushed away, has been defeated in its territorial base to become a uh, more loose-limbed transnational terrorist organization again. Uh, and then perhaps this will be the final question since we're just on the dot of 7.30 now. What objective criteria might there be for a civil war? Do they depend upon who's calling it a civil war? I think that's actually a great question to end on because that's really the burden of the book is to say um, – all of the attempts which have been made over the centuries and particularly in the last 50 years or so to define objective criteria for civil war have failed. Uh, there are always exceptions. There are always conflicts which don't fit the precise criteria that lawyers or political scientists or others have tried to come up with for civil wars. And indeed, it does depend, to take the second part of that question, on who calls it a civil war and also who gets to call it a civil war. Uh, I won't say any more about that because that's really what the book is about and you really must read it and you must buy it and you must give it to all your friends. And I'll be very happy indeed to deface it in the shop for you momentarily. But thank you once again for your attention. Really great pleasure to see you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.